Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Here is the story if you are someone who owes money, whether it's on a mortgage or on credit card or on a line of credit or on whatever, a car loan, whatever. If you owe money, I am going to and my next guest are going to be probably preaching to the choir for the next few minutes. Because Canadians are now paying 45% more interest than they were a year ago. That's according to Statistics Canada. 45% more interest. Interest payments rose to $33.2 billion in the quarter. That's what people are paying in this country on stuff that they owe. And we know that people have a lot of debt. I don't want to really talk about individual loans and individual finances. That's something that people can deal with with their financial planner. But when we have this much money tied up in this much debt with these many payments going just to banks as opposed to the rest of the economy, this has got to have an effect on the rest of that economy. Eric Cam is the Associate Professor and the Director of the International Economics and Finance Undergraduate Program at Toronto Metropolitan University. He joins me now. Eric, thank you for this today. Scott, would you say that you are lucky to have graduated from the best university at the corner of Young and Dundas? Well, you know what? Uh, normally, I would say no, because I think that, you know, I made my own fortune getting in, but I truly believe that I made it into the journalism program through computer error. So, yes, I would say that. Um, I, I, li- I like listening to what you and Ben were talking about. I have to tell you just myself, um, I've always thought luck was kind of that intersection between opportunity and and hard work. But then again, I'm a passionate Miami Dolphins fan, so <laughs> kind of hard to believe in luck. Uh, you know, they're looking better this year, but that's a discussion for another day. Let's get to this one, just because this, when I saw this story today, we know that interest rates have been going up, but to to to, to have the impact that it's having, and again, I'm not wanting to talk about this as a financial planner. That's a different discussion. But when you're talking about this much money now having to pour out of people's wallets and simply go into paying off interest payments, that's got to have an impact on the rest of the economy at some point, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it has a massive impact. And I'm not a financial planner, but as a macroeconomist, I know it means two things. It means it really does show the divide between the government which has a Visa card that has no maximum because the government, whether we like it or not, and I don't, can always pay money uh, to finance its debts and its deficits. So you have a government that doesn't, in a sense, have to worry about the amount of money it owes, but you do have a macro economy that staggers and gets slower the higher the debt levels are. And just on a very simple level, it also means that as people are buying goods, they're paying off less and less of the principal of those goods. So even if you are one of the people who now, frankly, in, on, in Ontario, especially southern Ontario, you're able to buy a home, are you ever going to be able to pay off that home? I mean, are you? how long until people own more of their products than the bank does or whoever you went out asking for lending money? So yes, on a macroeconomic level, it's not a wonderful thing to know that The things that we own, we really don't. It is the people that lend us the money that own the things that we think we own. And as long as we own less than 50% of them, well, sadly, those people can always ask for them back. And I have to believe, so there's two ways on this one. There's two things because A, you've got people who now have to spend much more of their money on these items so they can't buy other stuff. But then I have to believe also 
there are going to be other people who may not yet owe money who are going to be strongly dissuaded from borrowing any money to make big purchases because they're seeing this. Why do I want to, if I'm clear, why in the world do I want to get back into that mess? Well, you probably don't. And that's the problem. You know, we've talked about this before, about this delicate balancing act the Bank of Canada is playing because they want to slow down consumption and investment because on an aggregate level, they're so high that it's fueling inflation. But you don't want to slow down consumption and investment to such a level that you put the economy or the labor market into recession. And that's the delicate balance that they're walking right now. And so you're right. How do we measure that? Well, one of the ways that we measure that balance is in interest payments. How much are you asking people to pay or governments to service on debt that has nothing to do with the amount of money borrowed or tangentially to do with the amount of money people borrowed? So it is going to be a massive disincentive for people to jump into markets. And maybe more importantly, although I hate to use the word more, um, businesses. Should businesses invest? Should they start a new company? Should they take a small company and try to make it into a medium or a large-sized company, knowing that they're going to be servicing that debt for years and years longer than they would have had to a few years ago. And, of course, most of those people will probably never start that business and will never know how productive they could have been. Is this the kind of thing where we, we hear all the time that, you know, when interest rates go up, it takes a little while for the reaction to actually happen? It doesn't, it's not an immediate thing. It's like driving a cruise ship. You don't turn it on a dime. It takes a little while to turn or to slow down. Is this the kind of thing that we're talking about when we say that it could lead to a recession because of the non-disposable income or the disposable income that's not there now? Well, absolutely. I mean, I always say, and again, I tell you this, and I know people think I'm joking, but we don't have a laboratory. We're not physics. Our laboratory is the real world. So when you pull an economic lever, you don't have this cause and effect right away. You have to watch it go through the different markets and the different transmission mechanisms to see what's happening. So we measure the economy, of course, in the short run, the medium run, and the long run. And isn't it a little bit scary that what we're talking about today, these 33 or 34 extra billion dollars in payments, Scott, that's the short run. That's just the short, that's the immediate interim, sorry, not interim, immediate effect of the increase in interest rates. And look how strong a number that is. Look what it's done to our, say, debt to GDP ratio, which is we've watched it, it go up quite fast. So, yeah, your point's very well taken, that if that's the short run, again, the bank is hoping and the government's hoping, well, if the short run is like ripping off the Band-Aid, maybe the medium and the long run won't be so bad. But I'm here to tell you, don't bet your last dollar on it, speaking of luck, because I think the medium run is going to actually be worse when these things start to make their way through the system. One last thing then, you touched on this at the very beginning, governments operate differently or they can operate differently with money they borrow. That said... If we are now paying as Canadians 45% more interest than we were a year ago, and this story, this report from StatsCan is talking about Canadians, the, the public, is the same happening to the 1.2 or whatever it is trillion dollar debt that we have to pay off, that the government has to pay off? Is that also running at 45% higher? Because that's a that becomes an enormous amount of money. It is. The answer is yes. And it's an enormous amount of money that most people, me included, probably have a hard time wrapping your head around. And you may have some people on the left respectfully say, well, that number doesn't matter because the government never has to pay it off anyway because they borrow 
in Canadian dollars, so we denominate debt in our own currency, so who cares? Well, that's kind of a semi-ignorant way to look at debt, because the reality is your country still has to be internationally and nationally competitive. And as you start to add on more and more levels of debt, both internal and external, you become less competitive. Countries start to worry about your ability to pay back debt, and then they further give you premia on which you have to pay. And in general, it's just sending a message to the to the economy, both at home and abroad, that we're not doing as well as we used to do. And finally, finally, what happens if this does hit the labor market and Canada has to spend billions of dollars today they are not, but tomorrow they may be spending that in unemployment insurance, and then we're really off to the races toward a recession. Eric Kahn from Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, let's hope that the luck that we're talking about holds. Uh, hmm, we'll see. Uh, always appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. It's an honor, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talked um, last hour just about what we're going to talk about next, about the fact that technology as a rule, when we advance technology, we generally don't go back. Once we've allegedly improved on something, usually we don't revert to the thing that was there before. Once we got cars, we didn't, for the most part, go back to horse-drawn carriages. Some people still drive horse-drawn carriages, but not mostly. Uh, we don't, once we had, once we made stoves that could be used in your house, we didn't go back to cooking on an open fire out in the backyard. Some people still do that, I suppose. But by and large, once we advance technology, we stick with it. But there's a unique and very interesting example where that is not happening. And that is in the sale of vinyl records, record sales, according to numbers from last year. Now, these are American numbers. I don't know that there's any reason to think it would be different in Canada. I doubt it would be. For the first time since 1987, vinyl albums outsold CDs. Now, this may have something to do with the fact that CD sales aren't great right now. But nonetheless, the idea that we've known records are making a comeback. We've known that people like vinyl, they want vinyl, but the fact that it's now eclipsing a technology that is supposed to be purer, supposed to be cleaner, supposed to be more efficient, supposed to be more easy to use. It's a really interesting little bit of a uh, little bit of a story here. Larry Jaffe is author of Record Store Day, Most Improbable Comeback of the 21st Century. He also teaches journalism at Rutgers University. He joins us now. Larry, thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks, Scott. Really glad you were able to join us because this, to me, this is a really interesting story because, as I say, we generally don't go back to the things that we abandoned once upon a time, and yet here we are. Well, I got to tell you something. If you look back to the summer of 2017, I was sitting in Toronto at a baseball, a Blue Jays baseball game. This was August 9th, to be precise. My son's birthday uh, was that day, and he's a massive Yankees fan. So I looked at the schedule. I saw that um, Yankees were playing the Blue Jays. We decided we we're going to take a trip w with also my daughter, both also an adult. Um, and I during the game, I received a text from Jack White's um, nephew telling me that Jack loves the sound of what we're planning on doing um, in Detroit um, in a few months, uh, which was uh, 
having a, a, a business to business uh, conference dedicated to this revival of, of vinyl. Um, now, back in 2017, as you said, there seemed to be the signs that vinyl was coming back. But, you know, we were going on a hunch. You know, if you build it, they will come. And sure enough, they did. Almost 300 people came. Um, what we didn't, so we, we rounded up the existing vinyl plants that were in business at that point on both sides of the Atlantic, in fact, um, the ones that we knew about. Um, and then we had a, sep a separate panel of fairly new companies, about seven different operations that had recently opened or uh, were about to. What we didn't know was that in the audience, there were another dozen pressing plants um, also planning on getting into vinyl fairly quickly. Um, so getting back to uh, what you were saying, how technology <laughs> has, has really gone backwards, um, I call it the most improbable uh, comeback of the 21st century in the sense that it really makes no sense in the digital age you know, from technological grounds, from economic grounds, from ecological grounds, um, it's really expensive to make a record these days. And not only did it come back, but it came back as a deluxe product. Yeah. This was something that was in the scrap heap um, not that long ago. Well, let's, people, let me jump yeah. in, Larry. Let me just jump in for one sure. sec, because I, there's a bunch of different parts of this that I want to get to. But let me start with one of the parts. And that is, and you talk about, you know... Um, Technology, most of the technology that we create, one of the purposes of it is to make things easier, less work involved. Putting on a record is probably of all the methods of listening to music, even though it's not exactly onerous, but it's still the most amount of work. You have to put it on, you have to put the needle down, you have to find your song, you have to flip it over when it's done. Every other method since then has been way easier. And as a society, we always seem to look for things that require us to do less. Why are so many people, contrary to every thing that they would do in every other facet of life. Why are so many people wanting to do this as opposed to the easy way? Because I think when it's, you know, driven from your mobile phone, it's more background. I wouldn't say noise. I mean, you know, you, you would think you're choosing a particular piece of music for a reason, but not, you're not listening to it as carefully as the ex the experience of um you know taking the record out of the sleeve and putting it on a turntable reviewing uh the packaging i mean really you know looking at the cover art liner notes you don't get any of that it's intentional it's very intentional i'm sorry it's very intentional when you do the record you're, it is you is intentional yeah. yes um i also think the the sound quality is much better from vinyl. Um, now everything is relative. How well it's mastered, what type of playback equipment you're 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 playing it on, but we do know that streaming digital music is losing parts of the music. Um, it, it takes a really special, you know, speaker system to even get you know part of what was intended mm. uh, from a digital uh, perspective. Yeah, I didn't realize how much apparently of digital music was sort of washed out. I was listening to an interview Conan O'Brien was doing with Neil Young, 
weirdly enough. And I guess Neil Young has really been pushing for this new digital service that will have a much bigger database so that you can have much bigger files. But again, I didn't realize that when you are listening to something on iTunes or Spotify or whatever, it, it is a, a very compressed version of a song. That's correct. Um, now, I mean, CDs did have a leap in, in, in quality and being able to play more of the, the you know, those bits um, that, are missing from streaming. Um, but again, it depended on how well it was pre-mastered that they weren't using the, you know, the mixes that were made for vinyl and the, and, and the way it was mastered for vinyl. Um, some of the early CDs didn't sound all that great for that reason. So it's like history repeating itself backwards. So it's very, very strange. Um, by the way, I mean, I am format agnostic. I listen to CDs. I listen to Spotify. I listen to vinyl records. Um, if I'm really busy working on something, you know, I don't really sometimes have the time to get up and, and change the record. I have a manual turntable, too. So, you know, I can't wait for it, you know, to shut off on its own. In your writing on this topic, uh, you know, we know that vinyl has always, well, since it started, it's always been around. And even when it basically died off there were still those who were dedicated to it but what was was there a thing that really sort of caused the beginning of the bounce back was there something that served as the trampoline that made it rebound and start going back up yeah i would say the international implosion of tower records uh was a catalyst um, how I mean, here was this massive company. They had over 200 stores in the U.S. alone. They were global. Um, they um, probably through more mismanagement, um, you know, they got too big and they were, really weren't following certain trends. Um, but it wasn't. It wasn't only them. And Virgin Megastore, uh, HMV, they all had the same problems. And in uh, so in 2006, uh, Tower first um, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and then very soon after filed for Chapter 7 uh, liquidation. And the independent record stores were scratching their heads and saying, wait a second, this could be a really terrible thing that do we have a, a livelihood anymore? Or is this an opportunity of sorts? And a few of the independent stores came up with the same idea at the same time um, because they were selling more than just records and they were selling um, comic books. And there was something called Free Comic Book Day um, that the comic book publishers would give away uh, comics and it created a, a frenzy. You know, comic books are sort of similar to records that the collectors are, you know, obsessive. <laughs> they, they don't know when to stop. Um, they have to have everything. Um, so from that germ of an idea, um, the independent stores, uh, three different coalitions um, pulled their resources and came up with this concept called Record Store Day, which um, the first one was in 2008. And uh, the concept was to you know, offer limited edition records in very small quantities to build up, you know, some buzz. Um, and then also, you know, 
talk about how important these stores are to their communities. You know, it's places where you you know you could you can meet your partners, your spouses, um, your bandmates. You learn about life. You learn about music. Um, and I know that was something that I grew up with, and I think I sort of um, missed it as I, I I got older. And um, and I get so- I I absolutely get that. No, no. And, and I mean, most of us who grew up in the '80s or even in the '90s or the '70s, I mean, the music store, the record store, was a a huge part of our life. And I, but that brings me back to sort of where we started this, which is so many other things like that, the pinball arcade or this or that, they vanished. And yet this one is the one that's coming back. And I see no evidence that, for example, video arcades are making a return or other things from that area. It's just, it's very interesting that this would be the thing that would catch the traction. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you're right. I mean, I don't see dial telephones coming out. <laughs> no, probably not. Yeah. But there there are some collectors of VHS tapes which sell for like ridiculous amounts of money. Yeah. Um, you know, especially if they were, you know, very popular movies. Um, you know, thousands of dollars sometimes. Um you know, sometimes I wish I kept some of this. The, the, I, I do have a VHS collection. And I still have a working VCR. But but I think, you know, I think the pandemic also had something to do with the revival, that people were home a lot. And they were looking, you know, like for a new hobby almost. I, what I find fascinating is the younger generation, Gen Z especially, um, who – like my daughter, for example, she's 24 years old. She's fascinated with records. My son, on the other hand, who's four years old, doesn't really care. <laughs> and that's uh, so my, yeah. So, no. you know, in, in my book, I dedicated to my daughter. And I say, you know, one day she's going to collect a, uh, she's going to inherit an amazing record collection. Huh. As long as she gives a brother the Black Sabbath records. <laughs> but I was going <laughs> to ask if you. Puts them up on the wall. That's fine with me. I was going to ask you that, though, because I would have expected that with this rebound, the consumers that were the ones buying these were the middle age now or real hipsters. I didn't necessarily expect it was going to be anybody under 50 because they haven't grown up with it. Well, maybe they've grown up with it with their parents, but this was not part of their childhood. And yet clearly they are a big part of this market. I think if you went back 10 years ago, that might've been most of the story. Uh, But it, it very rapidly changed and in fact, if you look at the 10 most popular records of last year, seven of the 10 were millennial Gen Z favorites, mm. like Taylor Swift, like Kendrick Lamar, um, you know, uh, uh, the previous year Adele topped the charts. Um, yeah, I mean, Fleetwood Mac rumors always sells, The Beatles' Abbey Road always sells, Michael Jackson's Thriller always sells, but... I think that shows that this format has a future that the younger generation has gravitated towards it. Now, we're not delusional. We realize the bulk of the industry is still centered around streaming. Um, and, you know, I used to edit a magazine, a production, a CD production magazine uh, that went out of business in 2006 
for obvious reasons. Um, and we always, you know, we used to hear about this thing called the uh, celestial jukebox in the sky. And honestly, you know, as the CD started declining, I wasn't really sure that that would ever happen. But that to have at your fingertips, you know, basically all the music for like $10 a month is an amazing gift. Um, I gladly pay it. You know, um, what I don't like about Spotify in particular is that the musicians are not profiting from it like the way they should. Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's another story for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So I don't know if you know the answer to this, but when you're talking about how all these people are now buying and, you know, seven of the last 10 uh, or seven of the 10 biggest albums last year were younger people's, if we want to say that, uh, favorite music. Weird question, but are they are they actually buying it and opening it, or is this being purchased as a collector's item or as almost art? Is is the music being listened to on the records? I can't imagine that half of the record buyers, uh, as a, a report from Luminate, uh, which used to be known as Nielsen, um, can be can be accurate. Um, and in fact, other music researchers have told me that they think the number might be closer to 35%. Um, I think there might be some people who do that, but I did actually get Luminate to clarify. And I said, well, is it possible? They asked the question, do you own a record player if you bought a record last year? And that's where they came up with this 50% number. And I said, well, isn't it possible that some of those people were buying a gift for somebody else, so they personally did not have the turn, you know, the record player turntable, and they they considered yes, that could be the <laughs> that could be the way. Um, so, you know, as a, my friend uh, Gina Williams from Warner Music in in uh, New York, she said, you know, she doesn't really care what the people do <laughs> with the record if that's how they enjoy it. You know, they maybe. Maybe what they do is they, you know, have the cover art and then they play it on on, on Spotify or, uh, you know, Apple Music. But that, you know, that's all right with her. Who knows? From a rec- yeah, <laughs> right. Who knows? Like I mean, a- I, yeah, but to your question, I think they, I think mostly, the most of them do, you know, they're curious about it. Um, it is, so, it's a fascinating yeah. story. It really is. It's, it's an amazing turnaround for a, a, a genre, I guess we'll call it, that an industry that looked like it was going to be dead and now very much not. And the bigger thing about this, and we got to run, the biggest thing about this is probably if you've got that record collection in a room in your basement that you haven't even looked at for the last number of years, you, you could be, depending on what albums you got, you could be sitting on some money because there are now buyers out there who are really interested in getting their hands on it. Uh, Larry Jaffe, the book is called Record Store Day, Most Improbable Comeback of the 21st Century. Really appreciate you taking some time to talk about this today. Thank you. My pleasure, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.